Our first reading is from John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and Psalm 33, verse 1 to 9. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him, not one came into being. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Praise the Lord with the air. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright. All his work is done faithful, faithful, faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, all their hosts by breath of his mouth. He gathered the waters of the sea in a bottle. He put the deeps into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the, of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood fair. Our second reading is from John 1, verses 1 to 3, and Isaiah chapters 55, verses 6 to 12. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one came into being. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that he may have mercy on them and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from the heaven, and do not return until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower, and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the things for which I sent. For you shall go, into, for you shall go out in joy and be led back in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall burst into song, and all the trees of field shall clap in their, in their hands. Thank you, Nika, for bringing God's word to us this morning. Our theme for Advent this year is that we're going to be working our way over the series of services that we have between now and up to Christmas Day through the prologue of John's Gospel. So today it is the first two and a bit verses 
and we shall be expanding on that as we go through. Do you know the old saying that goes something like, be careful what you wish for because you might just get it? Well, as Christmas approaches, I wonder what it is that you're wishing for. I found, as the years have gone by, that my personal Christmas wish list has got very much shorter than it used to be. The thing is, these days, if I want an item of relatively low value, the chances are I've just gone and bought it and already own it. So I've become what is officially known in the trade as quite hard to buy for. I, I get warned that if I wish for nothing, I might get nothing. And I respond, well, yep, that's actually fine by me. But apparently that's not fine by those who feel socially obligated to get me a little something anyway. Well, maybe you're like me on this. Or maybe you've got an Amazon wish list all set up, ready to share with your friends and families and like, I don't know, some kind of seasonally recurring wedding list. And what, I wonder, are you wishing for this Christmas? Something or nothing? Something different or more of the same? Well, be careful what you wish for because you might just get it. Except, of course, you probably won't if you don't actually tell anyone about it. Do you remember, as a child, blowing out the candles on a birthday cake? Close your eyes and make a wish, Simon, but don't tell anyone or it won't come true. Nonsense, I used to think. It's if I don't tell anyone that I won't get it, but that's the mercenary logic of childhood for you. However, I do think I was onto something as a child here. Sometimes you do just have to speak things out loud in order for them to stand any chance at all of becoming real. Whether it's the longed-for gift that you finally pluck up the courage to ask for, or a deeply held emotion that is finally articulated. You know the kind of thing? I've been meaning to tell you all these years, but I really love you or I've been meaning to tell you all these years, but I don't love you anymore. Sometimes things only become real in the world when we speak them out loud. Sometimes we just have to speak our wishes, our deep desires into being. Because it's by speaking words that we create new worlds. I do sometimes wonder why, why we bother with preaching. I mean, it's an odd thing, isn't it? You're all sat there in sort of semicircular rows, and I'm stood up here <coughs> speaking words. And they're, they're kind of going out there into the void. I'm not suggesting your minds are voids, no. But they're going out there. And what's going on? And I think, and this is why I carry on doing it, that as I <coughs> speak, a new world takes shape. A world where those things have not been said in quite that same way before in this context. 
And so something new happens in our midst. And it's not just me, and it's not just you and your ears. It's us together making a new world. Sometimes it is the lucid expression of something, or in my case, the relatively lucid expression of something, that can give rise to change, to new possibility, to new opportunity, maybe, for growth or development. This, of course, is the premise behind the so-called talking therapies of counselling or psychoanalysis. The act of speaking can itself be the catalyst for healing. Sometimes you just have to say it in order for it to begin to become real. So what are you wishing for this Christmas? What are you hoping for? What have you not yet articulated? Well, if we get beyond the trivialities of the latest paperback book or DVD, I wonder what the deeper desires are that we have that that we might be struggling to speak out loud. I wonder where in our lives we are encountering that deep dislocation between what is and what should be. Where in our lives are we meeting that disjuncture which is pointing to the disintegration of who we desire ourselves to be? What are our unacknowledged longings that, for good or bad, drive our actions and our interactions at the deeper levels of our personalities? And we've all got them. Those dark places of our souls where we long for forgiveness, for transformation, for healing, for acceptance. We've all got them, those places that we keep hidden from others and even from ourselves if we can manage it. But our silence condemns us. Because our failure to acknowledge our deepest desires locks fast the door to our souls and keeps the light of change from breaking in. And so we come to God and to darkness and to the deep void that underlies all our experience of this created world. And we come to the first three verses of the prologue of John's Gospel. Because here we meet God's solution to the darkness that would otherwise overwhelm all light and life. In the beginning was the Word. This is probably the most famous line in the whole of Scripture. It's a dramatic statement of intent, deliberately echoing the words at the beginning of the book of Genesis, which starts with a similarly big bang, so to speak. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, says Genesis. In the beginning was the word, says John's Gospel. This simple but evocative phrase, in the beginning, just two words in the original Greek, 
tells us that we're in the world of something coming from nothing. The world of order coming from chaos. The world of light coming into darkness. In other words, we're at the beginning. At the root of the question of what it even means to be human. Where does life start? Why are we here? What is the purpose of our fleeting existence? These are questions of the beginning. And if Genesis tells us that we're here at the behest of God, John's Gospel takes it a step further. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. In the beginning was the Word. The world, it turns out, is being called into being by the spoken word of God. This is God speaking aloud his deepest desire. The deepest longing of God's divine nature takes shape as God speaks those words to bring form from void. Light into darkness, order into chaos. And what God desires, what God plucks up the courage to speak into being, in the beginning was the word, what God desires most is this. It's us. It's this world, this universe, this cosmos, and those of us who inhabit it. We are God's dream made real, for better or for worse. And this concept of God as, uh, as speaking creation into being is, is an ancient one. We have it in Genesis. Uh, it's not just there in the first verse, but as you go through the creation myths of Genesis, you get each aspect of creation being spoken into being. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and that was the first day, and, and so on. We find it again in our reading that Nika gave us from Psalm 33, where God's command brings forth the waters, and the land, and the heavens, and the earth. And the point, of course, in all of these versions of God speaking creation into being is that the earth is not just here by chance. Our experience of creation is not one that is predicated solely upon chance but upon some kind of intent from God. Other ancient religions and philosophies asserted Either that there was no meaning to existence, or that if there was a purpose to life, it was to be bloody, short, and violent. The Jewish insight expressed in their scriptures was that the earth was good in intent and ordered in its conception, because it arose from the spoken will of a good and ordered God. And whilst it is clearly inappropriate for us to take these ancient texts and treat them as an equivalent to a modern scientific textbook, I also think we ignore them at our peril. Now, I love hearing a scientist such as Brian Cox, who's one of my current favourite science presenters on the TV, I love listening to him explaining the origin of the universe at a scientific level. But I think we must be wary of concluding 
that the quantum fluctuations that underlie the Big Bang necessarily strip our experience of the universe of all order and purpose. Just because a quantum fluctuation started it doesn't mean we have no purpose in being. The insight that God speaks into creation and brings light into our darkness may well be metaphorical in nature, as indeed is all language when we come down to it, but it is a profound statement that we also need to hear in the midst of our own personal experience of chaos and darkness. And this is where John's Gospel comes in, because the word that God speaks into creation... The word that calls creation into being is not some abstract philosophical concept as the Stoic philosophers would have had it, and neither is it a mere personification of God's wisdom, as the Jewish wisdom tradition might suggest. Rather, when God speaks life into death, light into darkness, and order into chaos, this happens in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And this is the great insight of the Christian doctrine of the Incarnation. This is what lies behind the message of Mary, that Jesus is to be called Emmanuel, God with us. When God speaks salvation, what is spoken is a person, a relationship, sacrifice, Jesus. In the beginning was the word is a statement that presses the reset button on all our preconceptions, inviting us to pause and consider the very ground of our being, the basis on which we construct our lives. Is there more to life than blind chance? Is there more to life than the will to power? Is there more to life than a brief flicker of light and then eternal darkness? Is there more to life than this? Well, if God speaks anything to us here, then yes, there is more to life. Because all life discovers its capacity for transcendence in the spoken word of God in Jesus. Which echoes across all time and space, across all generations, across all geography. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Well, this is all very well, I can hear some of you saying. Simon's done one of his abstract sermons again. When it comes down to it, what does it really mean to believe this stuff? What is this God? Where is God to be found? What does this God look like that gives meaning to life? Well, what does God look like? Here we have to do battle with a traditioning process, which is as long as the history of monotheistic religion itself The ancient Jews believed that God looked like their kings. And so if you read your Old Testament, you will discover that they described God in terms of living in a heavenly court, sitting on a heavenly throne, which sometimes has wheels, so it can be wheeled out to survey the battlefield from on high, directing their battles and demanding their tribute. That was kind of broadly the Jewish version of God in ancient times. Christianity, for much of its history has seen God in terms of the Roman emperor. You know, we did our deal fairly early on with the Roman Empire, and uh, the Roman emperor became God's regent on earth, and so uh, we have tended to see God as a kind of emperor ruling the world through 
the agency and obedience of the citizens of his kingdom, uh, glorious Christianity, marching on to take over the world. That's typically been the Christian view. Well, we live in a sort of post-Christendom age now, and Christendom has started to break down, so we've had to rethink our view of God in certainly Western Christianity. And I think in more recent times, we've come to see God as being a little bit like Father Christmas. You know, checking to see who's been naughty and who's been nice, and then punishing people or rewarding them with gifts according to their good deeds. Three different views of God. And the thing is, I am atheist with regards to all these gods. I don't believe God is a violent monarch who defends his tribe against the world, although I can think of some Christians who do. I don't believe God is an emperor who's set on conquering all the other nations and bringing them to obedience, although I can think of some Christians who do. I don't believe that God is Santa Claus, I stopped believing in that capricious, judgmental God a long time ago, but I can think of some Christians who do. Rather, says the opening to John's Gospel, if you want to see God, take a long, hard look at Jesus. If you want to hear God, listen carefully to Jesus. Jesus is not just the word of God sent forth into the world to echo eternally around the edges of the cosmos. Rather, the word is God. And it is through the word of God that God can be known. And so Isaiah, he grasps this. He tells his readers to seek the Lord while he may be found. To call on him while he is near. It was there in the reading we had from Isaiah. For Isaiah, writing to the Jews at the time of their Babylonian exile, 600 and something years before the time of Jesus, God must have seemed impossibly distant. The tribal God of their history had failed them. Their land had been conquered, their temple had been destroyed. They'd lost their faith in the localized deity who they had believed fought for them and defended their borders. And they'd gone into exile at the hands of pagan rulers who worshipped violent and unpredictable gods. But it was these disillusioned, disappointed and dispirited Jews in exile that Isaiah called back to faith. And not to faith in a God they could control or coerce, but to faith in a God whose thoughts are, he says, higher than theirs, whose ways are different to theirs but who speaks new life to the human experience of death and whose word goes out into the world and does not return empty. Our reading from Isaiah 55 shows us how the faith of the exiles is restored, not by a promise of vindication against their enemies or triumph over those who stand against them, but by a message of hope that springs from the mouth of God, bringing peace and joy and unity with all creation. So when our lives are like those of the exiles, when the gods that we have previously believed in seem to have deserted us and failed us, what is it that will call us back to faith? What word will we hear that draws faith once again from cold hearts? Peace. Our peace candle is lit. Joy, the Advent candle is lit. Peace and joy and unity with all creation. We have a tree in church.
Creation is in our midst. You see, I worry that when we make God in our image, we construct God according to the principles of human power relationships and structures. We make an idol that cannot sustain faith. But when we listen to the word of God spoken in Jesus, bringing light and life and hope and peace and reconciliation with all that has been made, maybe, just maybe, we begin to see a God that might be worth believing in. Sometimes I'm asked, do you really believe in God? And sometimes I reply, not most of the time. And what I mean by this is not just that my capacity for faith comes and goes, although it does, but that all too often what the person asking the question means by God is precisely the thing I don't believe in anymore. In fact, of all the various versions of God that I've met over the years, both within and beyond the Christian church, it's only the one that consistently looks like Jesus that has seemed worth continuing with. Which is, I suppose, kind of the point of saying that the word was with God and the word was God. If our God is not Jesus-shaped, if our God doesn't sound like Jesus and look like Jesus, then it might not be God at all. It might be a king or an emperor or a divine gift giver, but dare I suggest it is not God And a Jesus-shaped God, a Jesus-sounding God, will have certain characteristics that we recognise. This passage we're looking at this morning from John's Gospel starts to spell these out for us. And so we move into verse 3. And as we do, it takes what might strike us if we weren't so familiar with it as a sideways move. It takes us from the divine word spoken in Jesus to a much more tangible expression of Christ as the origin and Lord of creation. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. A Jesus-shaped God will be the God of creation, the God of all the earth. I don't know if you were here last week. We had John Weaver preaching. And he reminded us that climate change is possibly the single biggest issue facing humankind. If we do not address our relationship with creation, with the natural world, then all of our investment in global health and education projects will be rendered largely pointless. If we do not address climate change and its attendant issues, then the people displacement and wars that will confront future generations will dwarf the refugee crisis and armed conflicts of our own time. And so John's Gospel, I think, quite rightly takes us to a place where we have to conclude that if our worship of God is not one which calls the mountains and the hills to burst into song and the trees of the fields to clap their hands, if our worship of God does not take us to a place of creation care, then quite possibly we're still worshipping the wrong God. From Genesis to the Psalms to Isaiah to John's Gospel, God is the God of creation, 
the God of all the earth, the God of nature, the God of the seas, of the deeps, of the heavens. As the psalmist puts it, the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And it seems to me that if we're going to bother with this faith adventure that we seem to be on together, then it has to take us somewhere worthwhile. If I'm bothering to turn up on Sunday to sing and pray and listen and learn and speak new worlds into being in our midst and share in bread and wine, if all of this is going to continue, it has to make a difference, not just to me or to you or to us, but to the world beyond these four walls, to the world beyond our borders, to the people beyond our community. And if we're going to gather in the name of the one who speaks meaning to all creation, from the darkest corners of our souls to the deepest depths of the widest ocean, then we need to discover in our worship something of what it means to live in unity with the God of all creation, the God of the whole earth, revealed in the one who comes to bring light and life to each and every created being. I simply have no energy left for tribal battles. I certainly don't want to rule the world by proxy, and I'm not really interested in receiving divine gifts from some spiritualized version of an Amazon wish list. But if we're in this to see the world made better, if we're here to lift our voices in concert with the one who speaks love into being in our midst, If we're here to participate in the transformation of creation and the redemption of the broken, then I'm in, and I hope you are too. So let's find ways of speaking truth to one another, of challenging one another in the way we live before God and the way we live in community with one another. Let's learn what it is to be accountable to each other for our living as we learn together what it is to be accountable to God. And let's raise our voices together against injustice. Let's speak out for the vulnerable. Let's find ways of living that are kind to creation and which honour the God who calls all things into being. And let's take seriously our own commitment, both as individuals and as a community, to reduce our energy consumption, to live in ways that are more in harmony with the planet. Let's break down borders. Let's welcome the excluded. Let's make friends with those who are not like us and whom we would not naturally like. Let's worship God together as we live Christ-like lives, learning to speak the words that God speaks in Christ, to bring light and life and order wherever, wherever darkness and chaos still linger.